This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Next on Plains FM, it's Notes from the Underground, opinion and discussion from a left-wing perspective with Quentin Finlay. Good evening, my name's Quentin and this is Notes from the Underground for the 28th of March 2022. Um, thank you for tuning in tonight and hopefully this should be an interesting discussion and so on for you. If not, I can't help that, but what I thought that we might discuss tonight is essentially New Zealand's economic history, a bit of uh, a synopsis of where we've come from where we are now and where we might want to actually go in the future. And the reason that I actually talk about this at this point in time is because for the past uh, month and a bit really, I've been doing a series of lectures at the WEA and that's the Workers Educational Association here in Christchurch. They run a number of very good courses and um, I decided to take one on political economy. And it was the first time in song I'd actually done such a talk uh, for around about 15 years. It was good to actually get back into something and so on that I used to know quite a lot about. And then, of course, over the years, you forget, you do other things, and, you know, you, you basically, like, <laughs> you become rusty. And so it was good to actually do it again and to talk to a, a number of people and so on, really about how the economy works and how politics actually influences economic decisions and often not the other way around you know people talk about the economy and politics being two separate things that and one guides the other usually economics and that economics is a science and the first thing I think that people had to remember and this is one of the things that I talked about at this lecture was in fact that economics is not science all right it's not scientific there's you know, even though they use calculation, figures, equations, there's no such thing as hard, fast laws and so on in economics. A lot of it is decided really on political objectives and, you know, basically really what you want the economy to actually do, you know, create full employment or create high wages or have low inflation or so on. And all of these require different economic tools. And that's why parties, in some cases, favoured one to, uh, version of economics or one brand of economics over another brand of economics. So the discussion was a lot like that, and this is putting it very, very simply. And one of the things that people asked me to, you know, talk about was how did we get to this point? Or how, in fact, did New Zealand actually develop to where it's developed now? And really, what is the alternative moving forward? These are sort of, uh, particularly the alternative question, I really can't answer in either in one either in one lecture or indeed 
anything on this show. It would require, I think, a whole series of lectures and inquiring a whole series of radio shows to actually give it a full and complete answer. But I thought that with that in mind, with what we had talked about in the WEA lectures, that I'd just provide a bit of an overview of where we are and, um, and you know, hopefully maybe come back to it in the next um, conversation in, in, in a month's time. The first thing I want to say is that the government in New Zealand has traditionally played a very major role in development of New Zealand's infrastructure, and that is hospitals, roads, schools, in the past century, since the 1850s. And primarily this has come about because really there was a lack of, of private capital in the country to begin with, and there was a lack of really organisation and so on in the country too. One of the questions was people pointed out, you know, the Christchurch or the Canterbury Provincial Chambers. Did this mean that we had provincial government, you know, a sort of form of federalism? And the answer to that very simply is yes, very early on we did. And instead of actually helping the economy or helping the country and helping development of the country, it actually hindered it to a great degree and the reason for that was that the the, the provincial governments uh, were essentially one very self-centered on their own provinces and two driven mostly by pork barrel politics and it made it very hard for them to actually cooperate and to actually get things done and the result of that for example was that you couldn't run a train from Christchurch to Invercargill they couldn't agree on what gauge even the rails would be and the result of that was that in the 1870s in particular, it became very, very clear that New Zealand economically, you know, and in terms of its infrastructure, what people expected was not being delivered, particularly too since gold had been found in Otago and people were looking at a way of, you know, getting that wealth out and moving it around the country and so on like that and throughout the country and they didn't even have a rail, a, a rail network to actually do that. It had been held in abeyance for quite a while. So Julius Vogel, who then became the Premier, invested uh, millions of pounds in an infrastructure development program. And that included really what was the creation of New Zealand Railways. And the result was, in the end, after Vogel and in the 1880s, you could actually drive a train from Christchurch to Invercargill. And, in, and elsewhere too. So you could actually deliver your goods and get things where they're supposed to be and people could actually go on the train and go places, whereas before that they couldn't. So basically the state played a substantial role in that. Okay, And with the election of the Liberals, which were really the first political party of the 1890s, there was much more emphasis being placed on delivering fairer economic outcomes and benefits for the wider mass of people. And because there had been a feeling that workers had been locked out of the economy by the government. There was a feeling that more farmers had been locked out of the economy by the government. There was a feeling that small business people had been locked out of the economy by the government. That was the governments before the Liberal Party. And so there was a real emphasis for the Liberals to say, well, we're here to deliver a fair economic outcome where everyone, workers, farmers, small business people and so on, can actually be represented and actually, you know, feel that they're getting something out of this, you know, out of the government and so on and out of the economy. 
And the Liberals put in place a number of economic reforms. Um, first of all, they implemented, you know, the um, broke up the large land ownings and created a lot of small farms. They implemented a lot of factory acts to uh, combat what was known as sweating and so on in the factories, where the um, in Otago particularly there had been an outcry because they discovered the course that workers were working long hours for little pay in very, very crowded and unsanitary conditions, i.e. sweating. It led to a, a big case by um, a big sermon actually by the Reverend Waterford Wardell Rutherford Wardell, sorry, called the Ch Sin of Cheapness and a parliamentary inquiry into the conditions. And the Liberals actually create, got rid of that. They created a lot of factory laws and they also created what was known as the um, arbitration courts and the, the need for the unions and the employers to, to um, basically hammer out national awards together and if there were any complaints to actually take them to the courts, you know, rather than striking. They created what was known as the Department of Labour to actually manage this and, of course, to actually, you know, seek work for people who are unemployed, so actually manage the employment and so on in the economy. Basically, they did all these things. They also introduced what was known as income tax. So the first income taxes were actually created by the Liberals as a means of financing these new um, developments so on that they're actually implementing and so on throughout this time. Now, by the 1930s, uh, essentially, you know, New Zealand had developed, uh, but it was still pretty uh, quite a laissez-faire place. But, you know, the state was definitely involved more and more in that development and so on. And it became more involved in the 1930s as partially as a consequence of the Great, of the Great Depression and the means, of course, that um, to basically... New Zealand to actually manage its own economy, particularly during the Great Depression. And so what happened was that the New Zealand governments at that time imposed a wider range of economic controls and regulations. Now, the implementation of those controls is a means by which the government could achieve a wide range of policy aims, and those were employment, um, increased domestic demand, and increased productivity. And although these controls and changes have mostly been associated with the first Labour government, the actual embryo of these reforms has actually found the economic policy of Gordon Coates, who was the Minister of Finance of the 1931-1935 United Reform Coalition government. And Coates was a relatively progressive minister. He actually did believe in progressive conservatism. And he surrounded himself with a group of young economists known as Brains Trust. Uh, one of those young economists was a guy called uh, Ball, William Ballsuch. And essentially, Coach was also a reader of people like the economist Keynes and so on as well. He was very much into development of new ideas, so much so that he actually got labelled a communist by several of the people in his own reform party. And in fact, the um, his friend and um, political colleague, um, Dowie, Dowie Stewart, um, resigned from the finance ministry, or as minister of finance, um, Coates had to take it up, because of the fact that he felt that Coates was developing dangerously communistic policy. And so, you know, essentially in the end, Coates became the new Minister of Finance instead of Downey Stewart as a result of that.
and so basically this all these things that labor actually did were created in embryo and so on by coats uh, against the opposition of his own parties but they were actually already there and labor built on them and it was the first labor government that became associated with what we could term active state-led economic planning and development and was credited with what we now know as the welfare state okay and labor introduced a number of, of, of benefits um, social security unemployment and of course as well knowing of course for me medical or free health care and so on and it widened the scope of a number of laws and regulations that were already in existence. Um, pensions were made universal, unemployment, sickness benefits, child benefits. And to cater for all these things, of course, it created the Department of Social Welfare and, of course, the modern Ministry of Health and so on as well. Um, the Labour government also imposed a number of reforms um, and, and and uh, labour and such as compulsory unionism and of course the 40-hour week. In the economic area the Labour government improved upon the economic reforms that Coates had created and it introduced a number of it, its own. And these included the nationalisation of the Reserve Bank because up to that point even though Coates had created the Reserve Bank and it was privately owned. The extension of state advances for housing loans and the creation of the Department of Housing and the extension of economic planning and regulations and the initiation of import controls and tariffs. Now, now the most important thing that people actually remember, of course, was the creation of the Ministry of Housing and John A. Lee and the State Housing Projects, uh, which were a fantastic reform of that government and quite wide-ranging all of these policies were designed with the aim of fostering New Zealand industry and maintaining New Zealand's economic stability, full employment and a high standard of living. Now New Zealand from the 1930s to the 1980s largely practiced what was done in economic terms as Keynesianism. This is active state investment as a means of promoting employment productivity, economic stability and domestic demand. And this economic and social prescription was accepted by both major political parties, Labour and National. Although they tinkered at the edges, neither party radically upset the economic or political direction of the government, of the country, sorry, during this time. There were a few hiccups. In 1972, the United Kingdom joined the European Community, or the common market was now and then, and this effectively ended New Zealand's guaranteed trade access to the UK, which had been the base of the guarantee market for farmers. This meant that New Zealand had to search elsewhere for trade, and during this period New Zealand pursued trade deals with countries such as China, Japan, the Soviet Union. It also introduced the first of its free trade deals, CER you know, close economic relations with Australia. Those of you over a certain age will remember that. In 1984, this all came to a halt, and the fourth Labour government, mostly under the direction of its finance minister Roger Douglas, went in the opposite direction and implemented a range of economic reforms designed to free up the economy and supposedly make it more competitive. What was happening here was not unique. Okay, because it was similar policies were being introduced by Ronald Reagan in the United States and Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom.
Now, the fourth Labour government and later the fourth national government under Jim Bolger and Ruth Richardson imposed a number of economic and social reforms that removed economic controls and reduced or eliminated economic protection and benefits in a number of areas. Both major parties supported and implemented policies that saw large sections of the New Zealand state sector being corporatised and later privatised. Labour and National saw the main role of the government as creating the climate for which the market would operate within. They placed faith in the market as a principal driver of the economy. Now since 2000, the economic direction of both major parties, that is both Labour and National, has settled. But having said that, both parties largely accept the reforms put in place by the fourth Labour government and by the fourth national government. Although there's been a move to, to blunt some of that market-led focus, the state still remains an active player, though it has to a far limited extent than it was previously in 1984. So it hasn't got the same sort of reach in any way, shape or form. Well, it hasn't got the same sort of reach that it used to actually have. There's also been a move towards active state involvement, investment in some areas of infrastructure such as rail, air, finance, etc. But again, these mainly being reactive. They're being as a consequence of market failure and underinvestment in those areas or as a consequence of recession. Many of the policies currently pursued by both Labour and National have also been the result of the electoral system, which has forced them to rely on smaller parties, such as the Alliance from 1999 to 2000, New Zealand First 1996-1998, the Greens 2005 to 2008, United Future 2002, and Act from 1996 to 1999 and of course some other parties and so on too. And these other parties are being included either as formal coalition partners or supporters of either Labour-led or National-led coalition partners, okay, governments, okay? And so they're being basically there as a means of essentially supporting the government through, and as a result, you know, the parties have had to agree to, to sort of common platforms so they haven't begun to actually pursue the same sort of radicalised ideals that they did in, in the 1980s or 1990s because the other parties have held a sort of a handbrake and song on them and if you want to know you know a bit more about how that operated you only had to look at the way that um, Peter's operated a handbrake of course on the Labour Party from you know 2017 to 2020 they couldn't do everything that they wanted to actually do. Now, the purpose of this has really been to provide you with a brief overview of New Zealand's political history and development from its status as a British colony in the 1850s until today. And hopefully it's given you a sort of broad, a sort of understanding of New Zealand's early political development and its electoral development and of course the development of this political economy. Now, the development of New Zealand today has not been a straightforward process. There has been a number of changes over the interferry period that have dramatically influenced the way and manner in which New Zealand politics has been conducted. I have little doubt there will be more in the coming years and decades. What they will be I cannot tell, but they will be a result of political interaction
And with that, I'll leave you in time for that. Um, as I said, I'll probably have some more thoughts on next month uh, to, to actually sort of come back and so on and maybe take this a bit further. But I thought that might be useful to get you thinking and we can have a bit of discussion and so on next month and when we return to the subject. Thank you and I will see you next month. Take